Chapter 5 of The Glory of the Conquered. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Glory of the Conquered by Susan Glassbell. Chapter 5 The Homecoming. Yes, sir. Chicago only two hours, sir. And the porter smiled broadly. There was both memory and anticipation in that smile. The car was almost empty. Across the aisle, a man slept peacefully. A little farther ahead, a young lady read of the joys and sorrows of a knight and his lady who had lived some several hundred years before. And still farther on, a lady all in black was looking from the window, evidently lost to sorrows of more recent date. As no one was paying any attention to the man and woman back there in the rear of the car, it was perfectly safe, when the porter passed on, for her hand to slip over into his. He responded with that quiet, protecting smile, which always made it seem no bad thing could ever come to her. Almost home, dear, he said, and then for a long time neither of them spoke. Many big forces flowed freely into the silence of that moment. She looked up at him at last with a smile which broke from her seriousness as a ripple breaks from a wave. Suppose we had to say everything in words. Suppose we had to walk on one leg. Oh, but that, you know, Carl, it's a little like the rivers and the ocean. The words are the rivers flowing into the ocean of silence. Rivers flow into oceans. But do they make them? And then the ocean gives back to the rivers and the things which it breathes out. There are so many reasons why it seems like that. Ernestine, where did you get all this? I sometimes think I'm not square with you at all. Why, I've been in all those places before. I saw the Bay of Naples long before I ever saw you, and yet I didn't really see it before at all. Don't you see? Eyes and appreciation and every decent thing I take from you. Where did you get it all, Ernestine? She pushed back a little curl, which was always coming loose. He loved that little curl for always coming loose. Perhaps I got it from the way that you have of looking at me, the way you're looking at me now. Or maybe I got it from the way you say, Ernestine, the way you said it just now. But does it matter much what comes from which? With which bit of lucidity she wrinkled up her nose at him in a way which always vanquished argument and returned to the silence which seemed waiting to claim her. He watched her then. He loved so to do that. Just see how far he could follow. Ernestine seemed to draw things to her in a way very wonderful to him. You know, Liebchen, as he saw that steady light of resolution shine through the veil of her tenderness, it seems so queer to me that you really do anything. Well, for a neatly turned compliment, I mean it seems so queer you should really amount to anything. Now before you overwhelm we with further adulation, what are you talking about? I'm talking about your being an artist. I can't get used to your being anything but Ernestine. That day last spring when we went to see your salon picture and when those chaps were talking to you and I realized that they just simply accepted you as one of them, that you belonged, and that that was all there was about it. I, oh, I had such a funny feeling that day. 
And now, a minute ago, when I saw that look, I had it again. Why, Carl, you don't mind, do you? No, it's just that it seems queer. You see, you're such a wonderful sweetheart, it's hard to think of you as anything else. I'll never forget that day over there. Something just seemed to leap up within you. I, well, I think I was a little scared, or was I awed? Something that was shining from your eyes made me feel things in my backbone. But you're glad, she laughed. Of course I'm glad, and I'm proud. But it's queer. She smiled at him understandingly. The understandingness of her smile always went beyond her words. It was a beautiful face upon which he watched the play of lights, saw the changing currents of thought and dreams and purpose. But the thing most rare in it, that which made one quite forget accepted standards, was the steadfastness with which a certain great light shone through the aura of her tenderness. There were moments in which she transcended both her beauty and her beauty's weaknesses. As the flower to the sun, naturally, quietly, inevitably, she had expanded under the breath of life. With the fullness of a rich nature, she had responded to the touch of the spirit of living. Love loved her for what she had been able to take. And in the year which had passed, life, with tender rather than defacing lines, had put upon her face the touch of sorrow. Europe meant more to her than an old-world civilization, more than tradition, beauty, or art. It even meant more than the place where she had spent those first dear months of her love. It meant to her the place where she had hoped with women's dearest hope, and where she had given up the child which should have been hers. Her tenderest, deepest thoughts were not of the wonders and beauties she had seen. They were of the dreams within of the holy happiness of first knowledge, and then the grief in giving up the much desired, which she had known only in anticipation. The most cherished memories of their love were memories of those days in which he had comforted her, of the tenderness with which he had consoled, the strength with which he had upheld. Those hours had reached far into her soul, deepening it, giving her, as if in compensation, new channels for love, new understanding of those innermost things of life. But in those first days, even while the soul of the woman was deepening, the bruised heart was as the heart of a child. It was as a child she had been to him in those days, and he had comforted her as one would comfort an idolized child, whose hurt one strove to take wholly onto oneself. The memory of those hours knit them together as no other thing could have done. Looking down at her face now, he saw that look he had come to know, that faraway, frightened, wistful look. Very gently, he laid his hand upon her knee. I'm going to make you so happy. Life is going to be so beautiful, he said. She smiled at him, but the tears were in it. Yes, Carl, I know. But now that we are coming home, together, Alone, doesn't it seem? He turned away. The man had suffered, too. And we are leaving it over there, over there, alone, away from us, the life that should have been. With that, he turned resolutely back to her. Ernestine, isn't there another way to look at it? It came of our love, and now, dear, it has gone back into our love. It isn't something apart from us, something gone. 
We have taken it back unto ourselves. It is here with us. The greater love we have, that is it there. The flame of understanding leaped quickly to her eyes. Oh, I like that, Carl, she whispered. I like that better than anything you ever said. She turned then and looked from the window. Across the fields, over near the horizon, she could see a little house. The smoke was curling from the chimney. The autumn twilight had come on, and they had lighted the lamp. A bit of home. The tears came to her eyes. Tears of tender anticipation. She, too, was to make a home. And was it not good to think that smoke was coming from many chimneys and many lamps were being lighted? Was it not good to feel that the dear world was full of homes? To the man this coming back to Chicago, returning to his work after the year and a half he had been away, was charged with a happy significance. As they drew nearer and nearer, an impatience possessed him to begin at once, that desire of the worker to start immediately. He had worked some over there, had done a few things which were most satisfactory, but he wanted now to settle down to actual work in his old place, with his own things. He fell to wondering if they had changed the laboratory, resentful at the possibility. Why, look here, Ernestine, he suddenly burst forth, turning to her eagerly. Tomorrow's a school day. We're late getting home. Everything is in swing. They're waiting for me. And by Jove, I can just as well as not begin tomorrow. A woman who never made one feel things in one's backbone might have resented this quick, eager plunge into work. But Ernestine knew the love of work herself, and her eyes brightened to his spirit. But dear, dear me, Carl, after a second's hesitation, it seems you should take a day or two first. Why? he demanded. Well, vaguely, to get rested up. Rested up? He stretched forth his arm and then doubled it back, and they both laughed. That's a joke, my getting rested up. Why, I feel like a fighting cock. And crazy to get to work? Getting that way. Oh, I tell you, Ernestine, there's nothing like it. Again, she did not mind. She understood. She looked at his glowing face, all alight with enthusiasm for the work to which he was going back. She was never tired of thinking how Carl's face was just what Carl's face should be, reflective of a clear-cut, far-seeing, deeply comprehending mind. It seemed all written there all those things of mind and character, and something, too, of those other things, the things which were for her alone. Ernestine held that one could tell by looking at Carl that he was doing some great thing. But see here, Dr. Hubers, a nice way you have of shirking your domestic duties. Who is going to help me settle this famous house Georgia tells about? I'll do it at night, he protested eagerly. I'll work every night until the house is spick and span. Ernestine sighed. I have a sad feeling that our house will never be spick and span, but we'll have some fun, eagerly, fixing it up. Of course we'll have fun fixing it up. George is sure to be on hand, and I'll make old Parkman get busy, too. Do him good. I don't care about knowing a lot of men. Well, I should hope not. You didn't let me finish. I was going to say that Dr. Parkman is one man I do want to know. You'll like Parkman, and he'll like you. By Jove, he's got to. You mustn't mind if he snaps your head off occasionally. His life's made him savage. But even his life, he's had an awful one, Ernestine. 
couldn't make him vicious. He's the gruffest, snarliest, biggest man I ever knew, meaner than the devil and the best friend on top of earth. And Lord, how he works. I don't know any other three men could swing the same load. And I tell you, Ernestine, he's great. There's not a better surgeon in all Europe. Parkman's a tremendous help to me. Oh, it's going to be great to get back. We have some really nice things for our house, mused Ernestine. I'm glad we decided to take that rug for the library. Of course, it, it seemed pretty high, but a library without a nice rug wouldn't do at all, not for us. No, that's right, library without a rug. Now I wonder if I'm to have my old eight o'clock lecture hour. I want that hour. I want to get all the school business out of the way in the morning. I must have plenty of uninterrupted time for myself. I tell you what it is, Ernestine, I'm going to get it. What I saw over there of the other fellows makes me all the more sure of myself. And coming back now, after being made all over new, you see there's such a thing as inspiration in my work, just as there is in yours. Of course, it's work, 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 work your way through this and that, and there's something or other that leads you on, and I know I'm going to do something now. I know it too, Carl, she responded, and the steadfastness shone strong through the tenderness now. We all know it. I've got to, he murmured, got to. And then his whole mind seized upon it. Some suggestion had come to him, some of that inspiration of which he had spoken. He sat there looking straight ahead, brows drawn, eyes sometimes half-closing, occasionally nodding his head as he saw a point more clearly. He looked in such moments as though indeed made for conquest, indomitable. One could almost feel his mind at work, could fancy the skillful cutting away of error, the inevitable working ahead to truth. At last he turned to her. There's no reason for not beginning tomorrow, he said, with the eagerness of a boy who would try a new gun or fishing rod. There are a whole lot of things I want to get right at now. End of chapter 5. Recording by Sheila Blunt.